1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. 1 Timothy 6, 20, Paul writes, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. If you are uh, visiting us uh, this week and you are not, uh, you've not been regular at the Life of Grace Church, uh, we regularly go through the books of the Bible verse by verse. We try to find uh, whatever letter or book that might most tell us and move us to do what God wants us to do at that moment. So your elders spend lots of time in prayer and searching and asking questions and listening uh, to the things that people say. Uh, so that we can better uh, sense where the Lord might want us to uh, study. And so this week we are wrapping up First Timothy. We have been looking at what it means to be a gospel-centered community and how to be a gospel-centered community. And we are in the final two verses of this great letter. Uh, next week we are starting up in Exodus. And so uh, we're buckling down for the long haul in Exodus. And so um, I hope it doesn't lead to your Exodus. Uh, but if it does, you will end up in the sermon illustration. So, particularly when we talk about the grumbling Israelites. My wife's just shaking her head. Sorry. Well, if you are older than me, you probably have heard about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, it's a relatively small museum, and the night shift there was very quiet most of the time, pretty boring. I mean, I can imagine the security guards just with their feet propped up on the desk, newsing uh, about 2 a.m., and it's just one of those museums that you would wonder, why would they even need security in the first place? Um, but the museum was home and still is home to some of the finest art collections in the world, just amazing uh, art and some of the names that you'd hear there uh, are just just incredible collection. However, March 18th, 1990, two men dressed as police officers buzzed the front door, just rang the doorbell, uh, and told the security guard that they were there to check out a disturbance call uh, from someone in the community. The guard, of course, seeing police officers, opens the door, lets them in. Uh, they asked the guard for his help and also asked him to call for his partner to come and help them as well. And so the guard, again, not thinking anything uh, about it, steps away from his desk where the alarm buzzer is and goes to help these two police officers. And his buddy comes as well. They walk a little ways down the hall. And before they know, they know it, they're jumped by these police officers, beat up, tied, and then taken down into the basement where they're strapped to the pipes of the basement museum, and they're left there for hours as they listen to these two robbers, to these two thieves, steal the plunder that, is at, that was at the Isabella uh, Gardner Museum. The thieves were able, in 81 minutes, kind of leisure, I can just see them leisurely walking in and out of the museum as they took over $500 million worth of art. It was the greatest heist in all of modern history. $500 million. Things like uh, uh, Rembrandt's Christ on the Stormy Sea of Galilee. If you've never seen a beautiful painting, it's gone. We don't know where it's at. Still an unsolved mystery. The greatest heist 
ever. And it all happened because the guards left their post and followed a distraction. My friends, as a church, we have been entrusted with something far more valuable than a Rembrandt painting. Far more valuable than Vermeer's greatest works of art. We have the gospel, the infinitely priceless gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must remain on guard and not follow distractions. When you think about how simple it was, the gardener art thieves did not knock on the door of the Isabella and say, hello, we're here to rob you. They came dressed as fellow servants, public servants, trusted guards themselves, knocked on the door, claiming that they were here to help, and then led the guards away into a distraction. And they were able to walk away with the plunder. In the same way, people do not walk into the church. Servants of the enemy do not walk into the church saying, Hello, we're here from Satan and we're here to plunder your gospel. They come in dressed as servants, smooth speech, and they try to lead us away into distractions so that we will abandon that which we were entrusted to guard. And as a consequence, the church is left tied up in the basement, powerless, and left to watch as the enemy plunders our most precious treasure. Now, knowing that this is an imminent danger, a serious danger, Paul writes to Timothy and to the Ephesian church and tells them of the importance of faithfully guarding the deposit and carefully avoiding the distractions that will come into this ministry. So first we're going to look at that positive instruction, guard, And then we're going to get to the negative side of that, avoid. So positively guard, negatively avoid. Do this, don't do that, okay? So with one final exhortation, Paul says at the beginning of verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now the words, O Timothy, just that that phrase alone communicates this emotion, this, this urgency, this passionate plea. O Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Everything in 1 Timothy has been pressing on into this one singular exhortation. Timothy, guard the deposit. Now, seeing Paul's intensity and urgency over this, it leads us to two questions. Number one, what is it that Timothy is to guard? And second, why must it be guarded? So let's look at the first question. Paul tells, Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit or to guard that which has been entrusted to him. Now, the way Paul uses the, that same word, the deposit, in his second letter to Timothy uh, shines a little light on exactly what he meant by, by the deposit. What is the deposit? In 2 Timothy 1, uh, verses 8 through 11, Paul begins to talk about his gospel ministry, his apostleship, his work and labor to make the gospel known to the nations and to Gentiles. He talks about the message for which he was appointed a teacher. And then in verse 12, he says that he trusts that God will guard that which was entrusted to me. So there's that word, the, that which was deposited to me. Then later in verse 14, he tells Timothy again, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So from context of 2 Timothy, it seems fairly clear that in these texts, the deposit is referring to the ministry of the gospel, 
to which Paul and Timothy had been called, the ministry of making the gospel known, including preaching, proclaiming, teaching, sharing, administering, exhorting, counseling, encouraging, correcting, everything that comes along with gospel ministry, that's what Paul has in mind with, with the deposit. It's this gospel ministry that superintends everything else in the life of the church, how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we interact with one another, how we choose leadership, everything is going to fall underneath this deposit of gospel ministry. Now, that gospel ministry as a deposit shows you a little bit about what Timothy's role is to be. He's not the author. He's not the inventor. He's the guard. The guards that were to guard that, uh, the, those masterpieces were not the artists. They were simply the guards for Timothy, it is not up to him to invent or to make or to change the gospel as he wills, but to guard it as it is. Think about it like this. You take your check, that your boss, your hard-earned check that your boss has given you that week, and you take it to the bank and you fill out a deposit slip. And you write on there, I want to deposit $200 into my account. And then the teller gets that deposit. What is, what is his job to do? to deposit $200. It is not his responsibility nor his authority to say, I think we're just going to deposit 100 of this 200. That's illegal. It's not up to him to do that. His job is to faithfully take the deposit that you give him and then to, to deposit it into your account. Timothy must keep the gospel. The church must keep the gospel as it is. We do not improve upon it. We guard it. We do not change it. We guard it. We do not edit it. We guard it. Here's what one commentator says about it. He says it in a beautiful way. Um, He says, what is meant by the, the deposit? It means that which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. That which you have received, not that which you have devised. A thing not of wit, but of learning. Not of private assumption, but of public tradition. A thing brought to you, not a thing brought forth by you. Wherein you must not be an author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. This is the mistake the false teachers were making. They thought, you know, the gospel that has been given to us, this gospel that Paul has talked about, this gospel that proclaims Jesus Christ needs a little bit of an improvement. It's too simple. We need a little better way than just faith to have salvation. We need a little more things to do that we can earn and do of ourselves so that we can get a little more of the credit and a little more of the glory for our salvation. And immediately we see their error. They failed to realize that the gospel was not given to them for them to change at will. The gospel was given to the church, to us as Grace Church, to Timothy as an apostolic delegate, to guard Not to change, to guard. Now the second question. Why does the gospel ministry need to be guarded? The same question could be asked about anything. Why do uh, art museums feel the need to put security guards in the art museum? Why do banks and jewelry stores and virtually anything else that has valuables in it, why do they feel the need to have men who will walk the hall and sit at the door? What's The reason, well, it comes down to two reasons. Number one, that which is inside of those stores and inside of those banks is valuable. That's 
Premise number one, it's valuable. Premise number two is, it can be taken. You see, that's simple. Why do guards, why are guards necessary? Because that which they guard is valuable, and that which they guard can be taken. Now, that is especially true of gospel ministry. If it was valuable but could not be taken, then it wouldn't need to be guarded. But the reality is, is gospel ministry can indeed be taken because it is valuable. Now, to be sure, the gospel can't be defeated. No one is ever going to be able to defeat or thwart the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. Nothing will defeat that. But we're talking about gospel ministry. We're talking about the ability and the the responsibility to disperse that gospel. That can be defeated. That can be thwarted. That can be taken away and stolen away. That's exactly what was happening in the church of Ephesus as the false teachers were stealing and plundering and robbing away the church of its gospel ministry. Now, this is pretty interesting here. Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, to the church of Ephesus, and we think he wrote it around AD 62, maybe at latest AD 66. But then, just a few short years later, less than a generation later, the Apostle John is writing to the church of Ephesus again, this time transcribing Jesus' words to them directly, and he's writing probably in AD 95, and he gives them Jesus' warning. Here's what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, the same church that received the letter of 1 Timothy 30 years before. Here's what Jesus says. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I mean, come on, church of Ephesus. You received Paul's letters. And you're already abandoning the love that you had at first. Here's what Jesus says. Remember, therefore, from where you have, refall, where you have fallen, repent And do the works you did at first. Now listen to the danger. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you hear that? By abandoning the love they had at first, they most likely had somehow abandoned the gospel. I mean, I don't see Jesus threatening to take away their lampstand simply because they made a few poor policy changes. I see Jesus removing their lampstand because they have infringed upon the gospel in some way. They have abandoned the gospel. And so basically when Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand, he's saying, I will remove your platform for ministry. I will unchurch your church. Do you hear the danger in that? I will unchurch your church. As a local church, Grace Church, we in faith affirm the fact that we are not here because we were created in and of ourselves. We are here because Jesus, the sovereign church planter, the sovereign Lord of the church, has allowed for us to be here. He's given us a platform. He's given us people and a community to preach the gospel in. And that platform, that community, that ministry to those people can be taken away stolen by false teachers, or snuffed out by Jesus himself because of our unfaithfulness. So you see the need to guard? Gospel ministry is valuable. 
What we do up here in the pulpit, what we do in GDI, what we do on a daily basis as we go from neighbor to neighbor and proclaim the gospel, that is valuable work. That is not secondhand work. It is more valuable than anything you will do in the secular workspace. It is a valuable ministry, but it is not assumed that you will always have it. We should not assume that Grace Church will always be here. We should feel the weight and the danger of Grace Church imploding because of our lack of faithfulness to the gospel. I don't see God canceling out Grace Church's ministry because we don't have the best modernized building. I don't see God canceling Grace Church's churchship because we don't have the best coffee. But I do see God unchurching this church because we haven't been faithful to the gospel ministry he's given us. That's the danger we sit in. If we ever see Grace Church as a tombstone, as an empty building with cobwebs, with void spaces, nobody listening to the gospel from this community, we should assume it was because somehow we've not been faithful. God makes churches. God builds churches. God founds churches. For what purpose? So that gospel ministry will go out in the place. And yet there are thousands and thousands of boarded up, empty local churches that no longer reach out to the community. Why? Because they have been void of the gospel and they have abandoned the gospel for so long. And now that church stands forever as a testimony, as that place where people fought about the carpet color. That's what's sad about church ministries. We can so easily forget what it is that we've been entrusted to guard. We can so easily abandon it. And we we assume that it's safe. This is going to last forever. But the only way it lasts forever is by us all staying centered and committed to the gospel. To the message of Jesus Christ. The moment we lose that center is the moment this place just goes all out of whack. Everything just goes. So guard the gospel. Will this local church lose its churchhood? Will Jesus snuff out the lampstand of this church? Will this church be void and empty? Will this church be a dead testimony of what once was? The only answer to that question is will we abandon the gospel or not? So we've considered what Timothy was to guard and why it needed to be, guard, needed to be guarded, and now we turn to how he should guard it. So Paul's positive imperative guard is followed by the negative, avoid. In other words, Timothy is to guard the deposit specifically by avoiding certain things. Here's what he says in verse 21. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And that word swerve can also mean abandon. Irreverent babble can also be translated as godless chatter. Godless chatter. Conversations, debates, uh, discourses that are completely void of God and the gospel. These are just conversations about 
theory and leadership and policy and facilities and monetary decisions. And, and these are things that are completely void of God in the gospel. They're just discussions that are being had with absolutely no idea of how it relates to God and the good news that he has given us. Now, that's interesting. It's interesting that the war that was being fought in Ephesus was not a war of might. People are not duke and slotting it out back behind the church. They're not having some kind of paintball war to determine where the church goes. It's a war of words. Words. Godless chatter. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4. These myths and genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. But avoid irreverent, that godless chatter. Why? For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Wow. You know what's most deadly for a church? Typically, churches don't die because somebody comes in wearing a I Love Satan t-shirt and I'm going to totally wreck this church. (laughs) Churches are destroyed by the things that we say, by the things that we speak, by the things that we talk about, by the things that we value, by the things that we choose to focus on together. And the more and more that we focus on godless chatter and that empty talk and those speculations, the more we get off focus. These are things that are just mere distractions. You realize that? Mere distractions. There's a great story uh, that you should look up sometime called the Gospel Blimp. (laughs) It's basically this group of men who wanted to better present the gospel. And so they started an organization that bought this blimp. And they were going to fly the gospel message all around the city. And at first it was fairly effective. Um, and so they started doing it, but then they realized they needed funding to do it. So they decided to start talking about how to advertise different companies on the blimp. But then they started talking about, well, maybe we should fly other messages as well. Like, uh, will you marry me and all this different kind of stuff. And they slowly drifted away. The guy who started the organization ended up walking away from God altogether. And the guy who first asked the question, how can I better bring the gospel to my neighbor? Finally decided just to cross the fence and talk to him. But that drift from the gospel happened because of empty chatter. It's just a distraction. Chase after this. Pursue this instead of this. It was just godless chatter. Recognize the enemy for who he is and the way that he works. Going back to that gardener heist. Had the art thieves rigged up some complex bomb and blown open the front doors? Or had they driven their van straight through a wall, I think the security guards would have known exactly what was happening. Instantaneous buzzer ringing at that point. We're going to sound the alarms. We're going to we're going to set it off, and everyone's going to know that we're being robbed. But the enemy didn't do it that way. They came wearing police Halloween costumes, claiming that they were there for a good purpose, claiming that they were there to help. Involving people into their work. And sure enough, $500 million just goes missing. My friends, be careful of what you listen to. 
Be careful of what people get you fired up about. Doesn't that just make you angry that so-and-so said this? Doesn't, doesn't this just this glaring problem in the church? Maybe we should just focus on this. And what happens is the enemy saying, yes, look at this so I can rob you while you're tied to the basement. Distraction is the worst danger facing the church. The church armed and entrenched in the stronghold of the gospel cannot be defeated. Enemy, the enemy knows that. The enemy knows that the more that we focus on the gospel, the more we look at the gospel, the more that we gaze at the gospel, the more we help everyone else look at the gospel, the, the more he's going to be ineffective and not successful at attacking this place. But if he can send little attacks here, send the little little uh, little uh, small section of his army here and draw out the church. And once we're in the open field, we're his. Once we start chasing those distractions, those little decoys, we're his. We start having those godless chatters and we get drawn in more and more and more into speculations, he said, she said kind of things. They must think kind of things. I think this is a better look on the wall. I think this is a better type of policy. Those kind of distractions, he just draws us out more and more and more, and then we're eventually his. And then the city's left for him to plunder. So it's worth asking right now as a church. And visitors, if you're here and you're looking for a church, this is a perfect time for you to ask as well. How might the enemy be subtly turning you off course? What kinds of debates, discourses, discussions, foci is the enemy giving you to draw your attention away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? What wild goose chases does he have us on? What, what rabbit trails have we been chasing down? And do we realize that as we chase after the rabbit trail, there's a fox right behind us? I think we should feel the danger and the heat and the weight of this. There's lots of things going on. Churches change all the time. People come, people go. People move into town, people move out of town. People go from this church to the church down the road. New building programs go up. New ministry programs come. New staff comes, staff goes. The budget does this. I mean, there's lots of things to focus on. But the moment we stop focusing on the gospel which is ultimately why we do any of these things, is the moment we lose our center and the moment we're destroyed, plundered, and broken. So my friends, if, if the facility, if the budget, if the children's program, if the youth program has become your focal point of coming to this church, I think many of us would do with a good dose of repentance just to come back and center ourselves again on the gospel. To start realizing the danger for what it is. To see the enemy in his costume for who he is. To not leave our post and follow after some distraction. Just because someone says it's important. It may not be important. It may not even be real. And for us to stay centered on the gospel or else we will be void of the gospel ministry that God has given us. Now, Paul ends his letter just as he began it. 
that is with grace. Throughout the letter, it seemed as if Paul was writing to Timothy so that he, singular Timothy, would carry out his instructions. And yet, in the final verse, which we can argue sometimes is the most important, not all the times, but sometimes the final verse is one of the most important verses. Here's what he says. Grace to you, and you can't read this in your English, but it's very clear in the Greek. Grace to you, plural. To you. Wait a second. I thought this was a letter to Timothy. I thought Paul was giving this strapping young pastor a what for and getting him back on course. No, no, no. By saying grace to you all, he is signifying that his letter to Timothy was not a letter to Timothy alone, but a letter to the whole church. He intended for them all to read it. This is not Timothy's work. It is everyone's work. All Christians in the church were called to guard the deposit. All Christians were compelled to avoid distractions. All Christians were to pray for their leaders and to pray for the lost world to know Jesus, to pursue biblical manhood and womanhood, to seek out spiritually qualified elders and deacons, to pursue gospel-shaped relationships. The entire letter of 1 Timothy was not to him alone. It is is a letter to the entire church. These are not things your pastor must do. These are things your pastor and you must do. Together. The local church, we, we, we don't, I find the local church to be kind of a hot topic and it's kind of a splinter in people's mindset. We love the church. Like when we think of the big church, like God's people of all times and all places everywhere. We love the church. But when we start talking about a local church, we get a little antsy. Because we know how imperfect the local church is. We know how many problems there are in it. We know all the little nasty cobwebs that are lying around and the dirt-covered floors that are there. We know that the, that the local church is not so beautiful and lustrous. But yet, it was to a local church that Paul said the church is the household of God. As imperfect as it is, the church, this church... The church down the road, Stonegate, Omni Fellowship up in Cedar Hill. Those churches and this church, we're the household of God. He's writing, them, writing to them real applications such as gospel-centered eldership, gospel-centered deaconship. Why? Because he expects it to be done in the local church. So when he says the church is the household of God, I don't think he's just saying figuratively, hey, the whole universal church is the household of God. I think it's true. But I think that applies specifically to the local church. My friends, whether you like it or not, the local church is where we together experience gospel realities on earth. You want to experience heaven now? Where are you going to experience that? Not in your backyard alone wearing flip-flops. God has ordained it in His sovereignty, in His love, and His mercy to give you a foretaste of what Christian, eternal, gospel-centered community looks like right now. So many people struggle with church membership, for example. It's not found in the Bible. We don't see the word membership in the Bible. But my friends, the idea is there. Why would Paul write to a definite set of people 
in 1 Timothy, writing to Christians that he knew their faces, knew their names, and said, Grace be with you all as you do these things. He wasn't writing to Timothy to do these things alone. He wants the whole church, the whole church, and everyone in that local church of Ephesus to realize that it is their duty and calling to guard the gospel. My friends, if you are not involved in a local church and committed to it to help guard the gospel, to help us avoid distraction, you're neglecting your own duty. You're neglecting your own calling. Now, I know there's all kinds of people that are like, I've been hurt by church. Quit talking about church membership. Move on. My friends... I would plead for you to reconsider. I'd plead for you to reconsider because that is such a self-centered view of your own Christianity. It puts you in the center and not the people of God. Paul talks to a group of people, a definite group of people in 1 Timothy. These were real people. Timothy was a real person. And the people that he preached to every week, those were real people And Paul expected those real people who called themselves Christians who gathered in the local church of Ephesus to apply these things. All the letters, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, guess who they're written to? To the local church. If he wrote to Ovilla, then we would have had a book called The Ovillians. Why? Because he wrote to our local church. Think about it this way. This is how the whole scripture goes. The, the whole Bible is pressing you to think of yourself as someone who falls in the ranks of godly people, who falls in the ranks of God's people together and expressing that in the local church. First Peter 2.9, he doesn't say, but your pastor is a chosen race, as much as I'd like to remind you guys of that. I'm a royal priest. I am the holy nation. And I am a person of his own possession. That I might proclaim his excellencies. Gosh, I wish that were true. <laughs> definitely give me a trump card anytime there's a problem. Oh, don't you know I'm the chosen, chosen people here? He doesn't say that. Instead, he uses the plural you, but you all, you, y'all, Texan, are a chosen race. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Y'all are a holy nation. A, not a person, a people, plural, people for his own possession. That you all, not your pastor, not your elder, but you all might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you all out of darkness and into marvelous light. He called us. Paul said, grace to you all, anticipating that we all would practice being a gospel-centered community. My friends, if you see that there's something in this church that keeps us from being as gospel-centered as we should be, we should begin with ourselves and how are we hindering it. And then we should ask, how am I helping it become it? Because I cannot make Grace Church a gospel-centered community.
I can't. Your elders, your staff, your volunteers will not make this place a gospel-centered community. We might help it, we might talk about it, we might encourage it, but unless there's a people committed together to be a family that's focused on the gospel, gospel-centered community is impossible. Community requires more than one person, more than one small group of people. It requires a group of people to committed together doing these things. So I think First Timothy would be telling you, Grace Church, grace to you all, you all guard the gospel. You all guard the gospel ministry. You all listen intently to the things that someone says behind this pulpit. You all listen to the teaching that someone says in the privacy of your living room. You all guard the deposit and avoid godless chatter. I came in the Grace Church when I was 26 years old. And I came in with this, by George, I'm going to be buried here. As time gone gone on, I, I've learned the inconsistency of knowing exactly where the Lord's leading. And here's one thing that the Lord seems to be pressing on my heart. One day this pulpit will be manned by a different guy. I'm not in control of who that different guy is. That's not my call. But how will you ensure that the next guy, the next pastor, as much as we don't want to think about this, there's no plans or anything, don't think about that. But you should know, (laughs) I'm going to die someday. How will we ensure that the gospel continues going out? Whose responsibility is that? The whole church. The whole church. God forbid the day that I say, I have to step down, I'm called away. I have to step down, I'm called to retire into a new ministry. I have to step down, I have a terminal disease. That's the day you should know. What is the gospel? And how do we make sure that this church continues shining bright in its lampstand? You see why it's so important to have a community of people committed together? To guard the gospel. So important. So my friends, I hope that you're ready to be a family that's committed one to another, committed to your Lord, to your Savior, to your Father, God. Committed to each other as brothers and sisters. I mean, doesn't that, isn't that what Scripture calls us, brothers and sisters? Committed to guard one another, to watch over one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to push each other to the gospel. Not to have this casual relationship with the local church, but to be committed to guard as guards. I got to tell you, if you're here at this church and you have called this place home, if this church ever veers from course, you are just as much responsible as I am. I mean, we're not those... We're not, le- what are they called, lemmings? Those creatures that just follow after each other? We're not that. We're people made in the image of God and renewed in the knowledge of His image through the gospel. And so therefore, it is our responsibility to guard this treasure together, this deposit together. 
Imagine the foolishness of driving up to your bank and there's one person sitting on a mattress filled with your money. Now we give it to an institution, right? To people, a president, a vice president, a council, some advisors, a teller, and a bank guard. Why? Because we feel like our money is valuable and needs to be guarded by the most people possible. But yet the gospel, no, we'll leave it up to him. My friends, do you sense your own responsibility to make sure that you guard the gospel well? Christians, I'll end with this. The enemies of the gospel would love nothing more than for you to be duped, outwitted, misled, and tied up to the basements of the world so that you can do nothing as you watch gospel ministry be plundered of its treasure. And sadly, this is the predicament many, many individuals and many, many churches are in. Tied up to the basement, watching helplessly as the enemy just steals their gospel ministry. One piece of masterful artwork at a time. So therefore, guard the gospel that God has given you. Now, I could end there. That's a great conclusion, great landing point. We should just stop there. But, if you're like me, you read this and you wonder, Lord, who is sufficient to do these things? I'm a poor guard of the gospel. I mean, any given week, I chase after all kinds of distractions, all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of hearsay, all kinds of problems. I mean, I'm a, I'm a poor guardian of the gospel. And so are you. So what hope do we have to do these things? And this is the sweet beauty of who we serve and who it is that has entrusted us through the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, knowing that he's been given a deposit, knowing that it's up to him to guard it, here's what he says, but I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which has been entrusted to me until that day. He set me up as a guard, but then he guards me. You see the beauty of that as a church? We keep the gospel, and God keeps us. We stand watch over the gospel. God stands watch over us. Who's sufficient for these things? No one. Therefore, God, our great and mighty guardian, stands stands watch over the guardians of the gospel. What a beautiful power that we have that we so rarely forget about. So therefore, seeing we have no other gospel, no other hope, no other Savior, no other name under which heaven given among men by which we must be saved, let us therefore be faithful to the message, to the masterpiece, to God's magnum opus, that his crucified son who died for sinners on a cross was buried and rose again three days later, reigns on high at the right hand of God, and he is the only way, the only truth, the only life by which dead, worthless, guilty Broken sinners may find life and forgiveness and value and identity and hope 
and joy and peace. Some of you may not know that gospel. And as one who helps guard this deposit, I have also been set up as one who can share with you the deposit. The riches in the Lord's bank are not, be meant, are not meant to be kept miserly away. They're meant to share with those who are poor and broken and needy. And so as a church, what we would want to do as a family together who guards the gospel, we want to offer you the deposit that's been given to us. We want to offer you some of the riches that Jesus has given to us. You say, I don't know who Jesus is. Well, here's what you need to know. You are a sinner, broken and guilty, and stand under the wrath of God. And on your own, you must receive judgment for the way that you have rebelled against God. God is holy, and he cannot tolerate sin. But God, being merciful, righteous, holy, and just, punished your sin in Christ, poured out his wrath that you deserved, and made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Massive, magnificent, majestic substitute. He took my cross. I took his life by faith, not by works, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That's the gospel to which we want to share with you today. And so elders, I'll ask that you go to the back. I'll ask that anyone who would love to learn how to apply this gospel more in their life, to live for this gospel, to become a guard of the gospel with us, to even learn more about what the gospel is and to believe in it wholly, we'd ask you to come talk with us and pray with us. Church, I am glad to be a part of Grace Church. And as we close First Timothy, I call us all to be the guards of the deposit that we were called to be. May God be gracious to us as we do what he wills. Let's pray. God, we know our own insufficiency to do these things. God, we know that there's a a high and precious gospel that you have given us, that the deposit is more valuable than we could ever know. So, Father, will you help us not be distracted? God, at this moment, there are so many things going on in our minds. Maybe plans, maybe thoughts, maybe people. Father, there are things in our minds of where we think the church needs to go and what the church needs to be. Father, there are so many people here, God, that there are people here who are weaker in the faith. There are people here who are mature in their faith. Some who've walked with Jesus for a couple days. Some who've walked with Jesus for a couple of years. Some who've walked with Jesus for a couple of decades. And yet, Father, we also assume that there are some, maybe even many here, who have yet to walk with Jesus at all. Father, will you give them your riches? Will you lavish upon those poor, broken people your healing, your glorious love, your mercy, 
Will you grant to them, Father, life, though they may right now be dead? God, for those of us that are Christians, Father, I pray that we will stand our post. And for those who have wandered away into distraction, Father, I pray that they will return to the post and to guard the deposit that you have given them. That they will stop chasing after wild gooses and rabbits, Father, but that they will stand guard of the gold of the gospel. May we treasure it together as a people who want to be a gospel-centered community. Father, let our treasure be in you and in your Son and in the Spirit who leads us. We love you and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.